Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Melanie Sona. And I'm Erin Liedka. And today we are very pleased to be joined by a trailblazer, I may say, in the built environment and physical activity space. So we're joined here with Dr. James Salas, so who is a distinguished professor emeritus in the Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health at the University of California, San Diego. He was trained in psychology and behavioral epidemiology. He had a continuous NIH funding from 1986 until his retirement in 2017. And his research interests are promoting physical activity and understanding policy and environmental influences on physical activity, nutrition, and obesity. This research has been conducted across all age groups in the U.S. and in two age groups internationally. And he's authored over 800 scientific publications and is one of the world's most cited authors. He's currently focusing on getting research used to create healthier cities. Dr. Salas is past president of the Society of Behavioral Medicine, member of the U.S. National Academy of Medicine, and has won numerous national and international awards. So with that, welcome, Dr. Salas, to our podcast. You, Melanie, (laughs) and Aaron. Yeah, um, we were actually very... um, uh, privilege to be introduced to you through your work. So we are part of um, that over 800 uh, um, many citations that you um, have been credited for. Um, we've referenced you in many of our uh, presentations and work. And um, then we had the privilege of meeting you in person at the Active Living Conference this past year, which we'll probably touch on later in the podcast. Um, so we're just really excited to have you now um, in this more intimate uh, dialogue today. So we're looking forward to this conversation. Well, me too. And I'm so glad you were able to attend the Active Living Conference and uh, become fully initiated now (laughs) into this community of researchers and people interested in using the research to make healthier places. Yes, it was a very inspiring space to be in, I must say. We definitely enjoyed that conference. And, you know, one of the reasons you enjoyed it, you know, it was it was good for your mind because you, yes. you learned a lot of things, right. mm-hmm. but it was also good for your body. You noticed yes. we were more active there in those conferences. Yes. Is that right? Uh, definitely. The most active <laughs> conference I've ever attended. <laughs> the name we'd... Everyone gets standing ovations. Yes. Stretching. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we, we enjoyed that. And we um, do that for enjoyment, but also as an example of how we can change the culture um, to uh, to integrate more activity. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. You all practice what you preach, which is awesome. <laughs> so for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, Dr. Salas, could you briefly uh, tell us a little bit about what your research entails and maybe summarize a couple of what you would deem some of your most impactful findings between um, about the, you know, findings with the relationships between the built environment and physical activity. Yeah. Uh, the, the short version of my, my journey is I started out w- as a psychologist doing what psychologists are trained to do um, to motivate and educate people how to change their behavior. Um, and when I got involved and interested in uh, physical activity, I said, well, um, it seems like we should be looking into the environment. Your environment has got to be relevant for physical activity. 
Some places are designed for physical activity, like parks and playgrounds. Other places are not designed for physical activity, like, let's say, most streets and uh, and inside buildings uh, most of the time. So I said, I so I, I went on a journey to say, well, how can we find out about built environments and environments that we we control um, and how is that relevant for physical activity so um, I've been really focusing on this for for over 20 years now um, and um, and I was not trained in how to conceptualize or measure built environments so we've been uh, uh, collaborating with people with very different skills. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, city planning and transportation, um, uh, they've, they've been interested in creating uh, places where people can walk and bike for transportation to get them out of their cars and uh, improve the environment and that sort of thing. So, um, so we, we adopted this idea of uh, uh, walkability um, and when the first time we published about this, uh, people said, uh, this seems interesting, but we don't know what you're talking about. You've got to create a glossary because um, uh, people didn't know what it meant. Um, but now uh, when you talk about walkability, people have a sense. All right. It's designing a community where you can walk from your home to other places where you might want to go. Um, and, um, so when we, um, started learning about, you know, uh, ideas of mixed use that, um, that it's really unhealthy the way that zoning laws have separate caused us, uh, forced us to, uh, put housing in one area, um, shopping in another area jobs and offices in another area so that it's impossible to walk or bike. You have to drive. Um, and, um, of course, walking is great for health. Driving is very unhealthy. Um, so, so we've, so I, I call walkability or the layout of the whole community. Um, uh, we, we call that kind of the macro level of of the environment you know it's the big picture what does it look like from above um so and we found that uh we've done studies in all age groups and found that um in walkable areas with places to be active like parks and um uh recreation uh related businesses like dance studios and that sort of thing people are more active doesn't matter what their age is and it also, uh, we, we tend to find um, in most age groups that people who live in more walkable communities are uh, less likely to be obese. The other piece I'll mention is uh, we've, we've been studying the microenvironment. And that's what, it's, uh, what it looks like when you're on the street, on the sidewalk, in the park. And what's your experience? How can you design those places so that it feels safe to be there? It feels pleasant to be there and um, and you can you can walk around. So so we have we have found that also if you design a place, uh, a streetscape or a park that's good for physical activity, it works for all ages as well. So that's the kind of things that we've been looking at. And uh I will say uh, 
documented in great detail, along with many others doing this kind of work. Yes, thank you for that summary, Dr. Salas. And I think your, um, you know, your interdisciplinary background coming from psychology and then getting into built environment is quite interesting. Um, because I, in my opinion, I think the public health field is uh, still coming out of this mentality that um, the issue of health solely depends on the individual. Um, I think definitely we've made a lot of progress from that perspective in the last uh, few decades, but um, I think it's very, uh, very unique and um, uh, noteworthy that you were able to identify um, someone who practices trying to understand behavior and um, habits. You were able to recognize that, um, you know, it's an exchange of like where you are influencing the way you think and what you do and vice versa. Uh, So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know, in your opinion, how much of a lack of physical activity could be attributed to um, structural components versus the individual responsibility? Like what is the the balance point between those two factors and how active people um, are motivated to be? Um, yeah, that's, that's a, uh, I would say a, a really difficult question to get at. Um, um, and we have found um uh, certainly that both are important, all right? The influences on behavior um, certainly include things within the individual, their biology, their psychology, their emotions, that sort of thing. But we've, uh, uh, we've in, in, um, certainly in medicine and psychology and most in biology, it's, it's mainly focused on what's happening inside the organism. And, um, you know, we've shown that What's happening outside is probably more important um, uh, to your behavior. Um, uh, So um, I guess, you know, the way I I will answer that, I can't really give you a number. You know, it has to do 80 percent with the environment, 20 percent with the individual. Can't do that, really. But we have shown uh, across now all age groups and many countries um, that um, uh, so many more people are active and meet physical activity guidelines uh, if they live in environments that are set up to facilitate that. Um, and we, we sh- we've shown that, and others have shown as well, that um, a lot of people would like to live in uh, places that make it easier for them to be active. But because of our zoning laws, we haven't been building those for like 50 years in most places. So they can't live in those places. So they live in the suburbs where they can't walk to destinations. It just is not feasible. It's dangerous to bicycle. So they're forced to use cars. Um, and we find that people who live in walkable neighborhoods use their cars about an, uh, one and a half hours less every week. Wow. Well, one and a half hours. That's 90 minutes. Yeah, that's or, substantial. Or it's a big difference. Yeah. And, uh, and they, uh, they typically, uh, you know, depending on various things, they're doing about 50 more minutes of physical activity every day. So that, that 50 minutes is a third of the, the national guidelines of 150 minutes. So that's that's enormous. That is huge. And there are few, if any, uh, individually 
um, oriented in interventions, like trying to motivate and educate people to be active, that have those kinds of effects. So, so we think that you know the environment is at least as important as the individual uh, influences, and maybe maybe more so. Yes, thank you for um, clarifying that point. And I think you bring up some very salient things here. Um, I mean, just a personal anecdote. I just moved to the, the Bethesda area a few months ago, and I was living further in Maryland. So that required like at least a 45-minute commute each way every day. Um, and so since moving here, I've been able to have the luxury of walking into work 30 minutes each way. And it's made a tremendous impact on like just my general well-being, being able to walk relieves stress for me. So, I mean, it, it does make a difference. So everything you're saying, it definitely resonates with me personally, and I know to be true from um, the literature and so forth. Um, but I wanted to return to a quick point um, that you brought up about the zoning laws and how that definitely um, impedes uh, walkability and um, people's ability just to get out and, uh, you know, commute by foot. Um, and I know your work this expands outside, like extends outside of the United States um, and any of the countries outside of the U.S. or even places in the U.S. Have you um, seen any cities or areas where zoning isn't practiced or as heavily enforced? And how does that um, impact, uh, you know, walkability or people's, you know, propensity to get out and walk? Well, it's it's been so fascinating. I've had a chance to visit to visit many countries and uh so what I what I what I've seen um, is what we've now known for a long time. Um, all older cities, you know, and most cities in Europe are older than what we uh, our cities here, and the, the same with Asia. Um, uh, all older cities that were built before cars became dominant were walkable. They were activity friendly because that's how people got around. Um, and here's here's an interesting one. Um, before cars, people were in the streets. People owned the streets. So that's a concept that we can't even relate to now because we've never seen that, uh, in the, in the U.S., except special occasions, a parade or something. Um, and, uh, so, so many countries have a history of building wonderful, walkable cities. Um, and, uh, but what I've seen, if, if you go outside of the old city, the new parts tend to look like American suburbs. I've seen this all over Europe. I've seen it in Japan. I have seen it in, uh, other places in Asia. Um, that, you know, um, we, we kind of pioneered, um, this kind of separate use zoning and car, uh, car dominance uh, in the U.S., and it has been adopted around the world. That's unfortunate. Um, to, the detriment, to the detriment of health of people all around the world. And um, when we published one of our uh, international studies showing that um, in, uh, you know, in, uh, across several continents, people who lived in activity-friendly neighborhoods were way more active um, than those living in the suburbs. Um, a, a, an epidemiologist made an estimate and said if you applied these findings to uh, across the world, then um, uh, if if everybody lived in a walkable neighborhood, we might expect 2 million fewer deaths every year. Wow. wow. 
two million deaths just because of uh, how important the built environment is to physical activity and in turn how important physical activity is for the for the uh, overall health so to put in perspective um, in a, a, a series of, of papers on physical activity in the Lancet several years ago, it was estimated that about 5 million deaths per year can be attributed to inactivity, 5 millions. So that's comparable to obesity and smoking and, um, you know, some of the major drivers of, of death and disability uh, around the world. Yeah, that's um, those are some crazy numbers. And I think the other place that my brain goes to is this seems like a no brainer because also the climate effects of eliminating all of those, you know, if we're spending an hour less in our car um, and have the option to not, you know, use all these fossil fuels and can plant more trees because we want to make these environments more friendly. Uh, It seems almost like a, a whole other additional reason why we should all be kind of moving towards more friendly um, activity spaces. Now, I'm curious. So there's obviously some um, disparities when it comes to accessing people accessing physical activity. And I also think there's still some misunderstanding or maybe um, lack of understanding around why it is important that the infrastructure and places exist for people to be active. And so it may seem a little bit like an obvious question, but if you could kind of pitch it to people um, or, you know, be persuasive and explain kind of why it's important that every person um, has the resources and infrastructure available to them so that they have the option or might be more willing to engage in physical activity. Why do we need to try and work towards that goal? Yes, um, that that is uh, really important. So it, it, uh, to me, it starts with physical activity is one of the most important health behaviors that you can do. And that applies to everybody. Um, but not everybody has the same opportunities and resources that you need to do that. So um, so there have been quite a few studies about um, inequities um, in access to physically activity supportive environments. Um, and and I, I will say that, that this research on that is is pretty complex and not not entirely consistent. All right. And uh, and we did some studies that I think help kind of explain that. And and let me just give you an example uh, using parks. So um, we looked at uh, the quality of parks in neighborhoods and there there have been studies showing that some low income or uh, communities of color are less likely to have parks. Um, than uh, affluent or, or primarily white neighborhoods, and and I think that holds. Um, but we were we were going to look at the the micro level and what's in that park. Does it have a playground equipment? Does it have a a walking path? Does it have tennis courts? Does it have basketball courts? And and what we found at first confused us. Because um, when we looked across, we were we were primarily looking at higher and lower income, and we we just didn't see a strong pattern. Um, and we were we were uh, studying three cities, 
And I, and so we said, well, let's look at each city separately um, to see if the data make any more sense. And they did. And we found that there are different patterns in different cities. Um, and just to give you an example of how policies play into that, um, uh, uh, we uh, studied uh, several uh, counties around uh, in Maryland, including Baltimore and uh, actually including Bethesda. Um, and so um, what we found was uh, what we expected. Um, and that was in lower income neighborhoods, the parks were of poorer quality. Um, we also studied uh, Seattle and King County, Washington. And what we found there was a completely different pattern. It was um, the lower income neighborhoods had higher quality parks. So we said, what's going on there? How did they do that? Um, and uh, our local local contacts said, well, our county has a has a policy to provide equal services uh, across all neighborhoods. And apparently that um, policy has been effective um, because they they went beyond that. And in the lower income neighborhoods, they made the parks better. That's awesome. Um, whereas in in Maryland, they did not have those policies. And and uh, you know, like a lot of places, um, Maryland has has you know a history with a a lot of racist um, uh, policies, and that's still showing up in things like park access. So so there's a direct connection between policies and opportunities to be active and uh and so what is our conclusion from that our conclusion from that is you can't you can't make assumptions about where the inequities in physical activity resources are you actually have to measure that at the local level and then use those data to make plans for correcting those inequities so I've been really promoting that communities need to organize themselves to uh, go out and see what's in parks, um, see if the sidewalks are there and are well designed, see if there are stri- uh, safe street crossings, this sort of thing. So, so I think there's a, a solution that came from those, those research findings. Yeah, I think everything that you're saying, it's so funny because we've had people from all different disciplines working on all different kinds of project uh, projects in this neighborhood space. And I think almost every single one of them, if not every single one of them, have has said we need to be doing this at a community level. It's very dependent on location. You can't generalize across the U.S. or even across an entire state. And it's really nice to see some of those effective policies in place. I'm curious if you have any experience in, um, you know, how, what are mechanisms do you think that Maryland, for example, or people in Maryland can take to try and advocate for policies like Seattle? So that research obviously is very helpful because clearly those policies were effective. Um, but I find sometimes that research stays within the research circle. It's part of why we're doing this podcast is to get research outside of, you know, the research mm-hmm. Uh, circle. And so I'm curious if you have encountered any effective interventions or things that have been going on that maybe work to address what we see in Seattle and implement it in other areas. 
Um, well, just at the in the bigger picture, there are things going on all around the country. Um, uh, some spearheaded by local uh, community organizations, some head, spearheaded by health organizations, some uh, spearheaded by um, environmental organizations, some for um, uh, what would you call it? economic development. So there's a lot of reasons to to make cities better. And you you mentioned Maryland, and it's a good example. It's a it's an interesting example because the idea, the term, and the idea of smart growth started in Maryland. And smart growth is basically walkable communities. You know, a smart growth, healthy growth, uh, more economically uh, successful growth. I mean, it's all connected. Right. It's really all connected. And so. Uh, uh, in Maryland, several years ago, the, you had a, a smart growth czar under former Governor Glenn Denning, and that was um, Harriet Tregoning. And so we knew about Harriet Tregoning. So uh, when we had, uh, when we worked with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, to create active living research and create a body of evidence about um, how to, uh, how to. Um, make activity-friendly communities, we um, recruited Harriet Tregoning as a senior advisor uh, to us because she was a practitioner and uh, she could bring the knowledge of a practitioner into what should our research questions be. And then after we had the findings, she was very helpful as well as others. And well, how can we get this message out to people who can use it? to builders um, and to uh, city council and, and et cetera. Um, uh, so, um, so Maryland has been a leader. And so some other, other things that, that are going on, complete streets. Um, uh, this is a, a movement that, uh, that has been going on a while, and it's about designing streets to be appropriate for all users, not just cars. Because before, before that, um, it was all about cars. Um, and still to this day, um, about, uh, 98% uh, uh, of federal funding for surface transportation, you know, at least in some categories goes for cars. Um, and we've, we've been stuck at, um, two, one and a half percent or less going to walking and biking for, for decades now. Um, so, uh, that's, that's federal, that's federal funding. So, and federal policy. So there's a, there's so many things going on, um, to, uh, people understand the need to, uh, um, to make these, make these changes, to change our policies, to change our environments and do it, do it in a way that's equitable. Yeah, that's uh, really important. Um, something else I'm curious about. So, we, um, you mentioned a little bit at Active Living how it, um, you know, it can be difficult to get political leaders and people who are in policymaking spaces. So it seems like these are, you know, very community driven efforts, which is important. Um, but maybe sometimes policymakers don't understand the full extent of why physical activity is important and also the component of built environment and what a strong role the built environment plays in physical activity. And along with this, you've mentioned, you know, working across disciplines. And I think that's 
really critical in, in, in a way to convey this information to policymakers. Do you have any experience or ideas about what uh, what motivates policymakers or how this information can be effectively communicated to policymakers so that they are more invested and interested in cultivating these environments that are really conducive to physical activity? Um, yes, I, there, there's so many examples. I, uh, one that I, I like to use, um, uh, is a story told by a, a, a fellow that worked in the San Francisco, uh, uh, public health department. And uh, he, he was aware of all this evidence and wanted to make San Francisco even more walkable. San Francisco is an old city, so it is walkable and there's a lot of walking that goes on there and, and good, good public transit as well, which is an active mode of transportation, of course, because people walk to and from um, uh, the public transit. But he said, uh, you know, he wanted to go and work with uh, people in transportation to focus more on making things better for walkers. And, uh, and he would go in there. He said he first went in there and said, hey, I need some help from you in, um, you know, spending less on roads and more on uh, sidewalks and, and bike facilities. And they said, uh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're not interested in that. And we don't need your help. Um, so he, he tried again. And he changed his his tactic, and he said, "Hey, um, I'm I'm trying to get uh, more more people uh, walking and biking, and you're you're trying to do some of the same things. So, what are some problems you're having that I could help you with?" Um, and so, when he approached it that way, um, he got he got a lot more interest. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's kind of one example of how you have to approach these things with humility and not everybody is going to share your priorities. And that's one reason that we don't always talk about physical activity. Um, and, and I've hinted at what we call the co-benefits of active design. And, um, so you mentioned climate change. Well, a lot of hundreds and hundreds of cities in the in the U.S. now have climate change plans, climate action plans, and trans and active transportation is a part of virtually all of them. Um, so that gets you know active design at the table. Every uh, you know when I ask a um, an elected official what kind of research would really make a difference to you. Um, about, you know, making healthier cities. And I, really, I always get the same answer. Well, it's about the money. How much is this going to cost? And how much, you know, how, what are the economic benefits? So we got to talk about money um, to elected officials. And, and fortunately, there's a lot of evidence that, um, that uh, active neighborhoods are more prosperous. Um, in, in so many different ways, um, for, uh, for retailers, you know, uh, the money made per square foot of a store is higher in a walkable area than in a big box store at the edge of a freeway. Um, and property values, um, you know, going up. Now that's a, of course, a double edged sword for equity, uh, because, you know, there's the potential, uh, to, price people out of their neighborhood as it gets better for walking. But there are housing policies that can be brought in to, uh, to mitigate some of that. But there are, um, uh, there are health, you know, 
health costs are lower uh, for people who are active. So, so there's a lot of a lot of benefits there. Um, and the the other thing is uh, is market research showing that people want to live in walkable neighborhoods, but they can't find them. There's not enough built, or because there's so few of them, they can't afford them because of limited supply and excess demand. So, um, so there's a there's a really strong argument for changing zoning laws to let market forces um, uh, have more have more impact. But this this idea of talking about what's important to the decision maker and not just what's important to me. Um, and, um, and so again, that's another place where diverse partners coming in can, uh, talk in, uh, with more expertise about different components. That's very fascinating, Dr. Salas. And, um, a reoccurring theme I've picked up from a lot of your um, answers have, uh, been touching on, you know, the inter- interdisciplinary, um, work that's required to really, uh, you know, address the issue of uh, physical activity, and I would say, you know, public health on a broader scale. Um, so, I, I and this co-benefit uh, of active design point that you brought up, I thought was very fascinating because I think when it comes to especially things dealing with, you know, public affairs and welfare, it, it can be a challenge when it comes to talking to political leaders and getting them to understand that, you know, the issues we discuss are multifaceted and are not solely you know, an individual issue of changing the person. Um, so I really do appreciate that very clever tactic that you um, discussed um, in in uh, trying to um, advocate to those who can really make a change on the policy level. Um, I, I wanted to turn our uh, discussion back to um, a little bit more about the environment and its impact on uh, people's ab- ability to be active. Um, you mentioned a lot of good points about um aspects of the built environment, such as you give examples of um, sidewalks that are continuous and intact or maintained um, in parks as well that are maintained, giving people access to go and, you know, spend time or what have you. Um, but I, I'm also curious to know, um, you know, maybe a little bit about uh, people's willingness to interact with these structures if they are available and if they are maintained. Um, you brought up the point of, you know, we can't uh, assume what the physical activity, um, you know, dynamic looks like in an area. We'd have to go there and, phys- and you know, measure it. The example being the Kings County parks, which I thought was really interesting too. So, um, you know, you also in your work, um, we've had the privilege of reading your work. So our listeners might not know, but you've done some work looking at um, crime, the effect of crime in an area on people's willingness to be physically active. So I consider that to be another more of the, the social dimension maybe of a physical activity. Uh, could you discuss that and, um, you know, how that also works into this uh, interplay of, you know, built environment quality and people's willingness to be active uh, yes, yes, and um, um, we're my my last grant before retirement was act, was to really dig down into this question of crime and physical activity uh, because it it seems like an an obvious barrier if there's a lot of crime in your neighborhood, but the the res, the early results from studies, including ours, have been really inconsistent. Um, and uh, you know, the idea was 
that uh, if, you know, if there's a lot of crime in your neighborhood, you're just going to stay home more and you won't you won't go out. Um, and so we were uh, talking to a criminologist about this and she said, well, it, don't you think your your conceptual model of crime is a bit simplistic? You know, we have different ways of thinking about crime um, uh, in our field that uh, maybe we should uh, put our ideas together and study it. So that, that's what we've been doing. And so we're just now uh, getting the results of that. And I'll, I'll give you some hints uh, based on that. Um, and what uh, so um, I, I just use the example that we used in our, our first paper that we're working on. And we looked at walking for recreation which is the, the number one recreational activity uh, across all age groups. So walking is very, very important. Um, so, and we measured it. We asked people, how much do you walk each week inside your neighborhood? And how much do you walk outside your neighborhood? So um, what, what we're finding is that there are several crime-related perceptions um, uh, that we found came came up as uh, important in our findings. <clears throat> and one of them is they, if they have concern about crime, um, there, was a, there was a significant reduction or a lessening of walking in the neighborhood. Okay, so if you're scared of, of things happening to you in the neighborhood, you, 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 you might walk less in the neighborhood. Um, but we also found that if, if you're afraid of the crime in your neighborhood, you walk more outside your neighborhood. All right. So, so you don't just stop being active. You say, well, I still want to be active. Well, how can I do that? Um, and we also came up with this concept of when we were talking to people and developing the measures that we, we called street efficacy, or you might call it street smarts. And some people say, well, yeah, there's a lot of crime in my neighborhood, but I know where it is and I know when it is. So I can be active, not in those places and not in those times. So I use my own experience and intelligence and I, I use that to solve the problem and I, I find solutions. So that's a, a concept we had never thought of before. Um, so you see how the individual uh, perceptions and processing of information interacts with both the social environment and the built environment, um, the, the crime environment in this case. And we did find, we so we found some of these perceptions are important. We also found a built environment uh, aspect that was important. It's called crime prevention through environmental design. And that is giving, giving, you know, creating safe places for people to be active. And uh, we, again, had to develop a measure of that. Um, uh, and uh, so that kind of brings it back to the built environment. You can design places so that people feel more comfortable and safer, safer from crime. You can also design and should design so they're safer from traffic as well. That's, um, that's even a more common problem. Um, so anyway, it, the crime one is is very interesting, and you know I think we need more research on it. But then we're also going to need work to 
bring this information to law enforcement and again to city councils, because all of these decisions about how we're going to approach law enforcement and what our zoning is and what do we do about parks, these are all local decisions. Well, that's super fascinating. Uh, this crime prevention through environmental design. Do you think you could maybe just talk a little bit more about like how exactly do you measure that and how it's been implemented? Um, um, you know, just a couple of examples are um, in in parks. You don't have a lot of bushes um, so, uh, where people, you know, who want to rob you or assault you might hide. All right. So mm-hmm. so you have you have trees instead sure. that have trunks that people can't hide behind. Right. All right. So there's a, a, a simple a, a simple um, uh, concept like that. And uh, I don't know if I can think of other specifics uh, at the moment, but um, but this is is something that's well known in uh, criminology. Uh, and so we, we need to bring that knowledge into health and uh, um, and we need to connect it with as a solution um, for uh, physical inactivity. Yes, I mean, I think that's brilliant. And um, I've never, uh, I never cease to be in awe of just how many like disciplines can come together to solve very many pervasive health issues that we face. Obesity and activity is something that we've been talking about for decades that many, many political leaders or first ladies have taken on as like an effort to yes. abolish. But um, really, the answer is well, one in seeking the insights from these communities um, is a theme that I've been noticing and learning through, you know, your work and all of the other guests we've had come on here. And um, also just being willing to look across the aisle or across, you know, these other fields like criminology, something I probably would have never um, really associated with public health or thought to see as something that could be integral in uh, the solution. So I just, I thank you for breaking that down and for um, highlighting that uh, for our listeners to, to, for some food for thought, if you will. Yeah. And if I can comment, especially to the researchers out there, um, when I started focusing on um, exploring uh, what other disciplines could bring to this work of understanding and improving physical activity. Um, my, I just had such a, a steep learning curve, but it was such a fun learning curve uh, because I found every discipline had uh, concepts and methods that I had never heard of that it was obvious that should be and could be brought into the physical activity field. So it just brought a real richness of every, instead of everybody speaking in the same dialect and with the same accent, you know, there's a a richness and diversity of ideas and experiences that all come together. So now I've, I've come to see the, uh, see, you know, the, the research teams as, and the solutions as both think of them as recipes. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to create a beautiful lasagna and the only ingredient you have is pasta, well, that's not going to be a good dinner. (laughs) It's not going to be lasagna. So, you know, if you're only working in with public health people, you're only working with psychologists, you're only getting one flavor. 
So you got to bring in the red sauce and you got to bring in some vegetables and you got to bring in, you know, uh, the right cooking so that so that everybody collaborates well. Okay, so all the flavors enhance each other. Um, so, uh, so anyway, it, it just made my research career so much more fun and interesting. So I, I encourage people to, uh, reach out and talk to people in, uh, disciplines that you think you may have nothing in common with your research. And you might be, you're, you're, every once in a while, you will be surprised, uh, by what you learn and you can use it. Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, I think uh, your work and uh, what you're doing through active living, for instance, is a great example of what it means to really um, make the best lasagna that you can think of with all the different components. It's it's fantastic. Yes. And I love that analogy, by yes. the way. Yes. <laughs> um, and, so- and, you know, the other the other use of that of that metaphor is, you know, the principles um, of let's say active activity friendly communities are pretty well worked out, but the the way you implement those principles um, can be infinite. You know, not all lasagna recipes are the same. You know, every family has a different lasagna recipe. They can all be good. You know, and so so one uh, activity friendly community does not have to look like all the others. You can, you can, uh, customize it. You can, you know, express the, uh, the character of that community, um, in the, in the design. That's awesome. Yes, indeed. Uh, and I have to say that's something I really admired about the Active Living Conference as well. There was just a diversity of backgrounds, urban planners, um, you know, architects, there people from all sorts of disciplines you would not expect to be at a physical activity yes. conference were there and giving very valuable information. So it was a, a wonderful, yes. you know, mix of uh, expertise to um come together and really combat this issue. So I keep mentioning this Active Living Conference. People are like, what is this? What is this amazing organization <laughs> that I can potentially be a part of? So please, Dr. Salas, tell our listeners, um, you know, what Active Living Research is and why you started this uh, organization and conference and what are the goals? Okay. Well, um, this is really uh, thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that in uh, right around the turn of the century, um, decided that physical activity was a neglected topic area. Um, it, it was not a uh, priority at NIH. Uh, it was very small effort at, at CDC. And so they wanted to build it up. And so they um, did had a variety of programs, uh, all focused around what we called active living. And so uh, they asked me to lead the active living research. Um, and so the goals were to build an evidence base about how do you create active living policies and environments. Um, to, um, and to do that research, we needed to build an interdisciplinary field of researchers. Um, and then the purpose of doing those things was to create evidence that we could then communicate to people who could put it into practice. So we, we worked very hard to, to do all of that for 16 years. We had funding. It was a very long program. And uh, we funded like uh, $30 million worth of grants wow. um, to build this field. And, and so very early on, um, uh, 
we we realized that uh, the foundation required us to have a annual meeting of grantees, so the people who had gotten the grants. And we said, well, okay, that sounds good, but we don't want to just impact the grantees. We want to create a much bigger community. So we made it an open conference. So anybody could submit and anybody could present. Mm And um, and we had a really diverse program committee. And um, and just like you like you loved it. Yes, everybody that has come basically loves it. Yes, uh, because you've you you meet people that you would not meet anywhere else from all these disciplines. You know, we counted uh, 30 disciplines, um, you know, including, let's say, some ones of public health. But, you know, some disciplines I really had no familiarity with at all. Yeah. But now I have such good friends in those and learn so much and apply that. So uh, then the, the funding uh, ran out in 2016. And we and, and in that conference, we asked the attendees, um, uh, should we can we continue this this conference? And they said, oh, we have to. We have to keep this community together. Oh. We have to keep growing this movement. So through friends and partners, not through, you know, government grants or anything, um, we've been able to continue. It. So it's really community generated. Um, and, um, and so we've had like four or five now after the foundation funding ended, and it still has the same character and the same appeal. Um, so but awesome. we do count on people to sponsor sure. the, the meeting, to volunteer, to be on program committees and that sort of thing. So we, we welcome everybody to come. And, um, you know, if you, if you go to, uh, it's now sponsored by a group called GP Red. Um, and maybe uh, in this, uh, uh, if you go to their website, and maybe we can um, include a, a link yeah, there, yeah, definitely. people can sign up to get information about next year's conference, which uh, is in the planning stages right now. Yeah, I mean, it was um, definitely, you know, one of the most interesting and engaging conferences that I, at least I've ever attended. And I think something that I really appreciated about the theme for this year was, you know, we really got to look at how you can use different measures to address multiple uh, of these crises that we're thinking about, whether that's COVID, whether that's structural racism, whether that's climate change, and think about intersecting ways to address them. I think that was even just hearing about the conference pre beforehand, knowing that that was kind of the focus was a major interest to me because I think, you know, a lot of times the potential for these intersecting things to uh, serve uh, marginalized communities is overlooked. And so I'm curious whether that's in grant funding or other ways, are there any efforts uh, that have been made on the part of active living research, uh, whether that's been, you know, maybe there's been some supporting efforts um, or through, you know, grantees, are there any efforts that have been made to address the challenges that underserved communities face when it comes to having built environments that cater to physical activity? Uh, yeah, that, that was a, a constant um, effort from the very beginning. Um, and awesome. so we had uh, a lot of diversity among our uh, advisors who basically were the study section. They decided which which grants would be funded. 
Um, we reached out to organizations that served um, uh, 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 communities of color. And let's say like um, uh, within, within disciplines, uh, we would reach out to um, uh, in interest groups that were interested in specific racial and ethnic groups, and we would invite them. And so, uh, you know, uh, we were pretty pleased that at the end, about 30% of our grants had gone to uh, lead investigators of color. Um, and of course, that could be higher, but we thought that was pretty good. Um, and, um, and a lot of those, quite a few of those were um, dissertation grants um, to, uh, uh, to students of color. So we're trying to bring them in at the beginning of their career. Um, and that, that has worked out really well. Um, uh, uh, every two or three years, we'd have the specific um, theme of the conference related to equity. Um, and so we always tried to fund studies to understand the inequities and to find solutions. So, um, so that that's really been a, a constant and consistent theme. Um, and, uh, so, and and we've learned a lot about it. As I as I mentioned, you know, we've got data that specifically point to solutions and people doing fantastic things out there. That is great to hear. Uh, well, we have as we're coming to the to the end of our time with you, we have one question that we've been asking all of our guests. And, you know, this podcast is about understanding the impact that neighborhoods have on us and our health. And so we're wondering if you could maybe describe what your neighborhood environment growing up was like and how you think that may have influenced your life today. Well, uh, I was, I grew up in the era of free range kids. Uh, <laughs> and, um, so, uh, uh, I was, I was free to roam, um, had a bicycle. So I, I rode all over the place and, um, I, I lived in, I, I would say, I would call it a, a lower middle class suburb in the, in the fifties and sixties. And, um, so there were a couple of stores that were in walking distance, but, you know, they were convenience stores. So not, not places that you would want to do a lot of shopping. Um, and I, I could walk to school, walk and bike to school. So I did that, but we didn't have sidewalks in our neighborhood. Um, there's really not a, a park accessible nearby. Um, so, uh, you know, I, but that didn't stop me from riding my bike all over the place. The, <laughs> the streets had fairly low traffic and I stayed off of the high traffic streets. Yeah. Um, so I, I learned to navigate um, in, in that environment. I would say I was, I was pretty active. Um, uh, but, um, you know, it's not like that everywhere, you know, so I had some advantages and some disadvantages. So I, I understood you know, the range of, uh, um, you know, kind of conditions that, that people can live with. Um, and, you know, since, you know, since I've been grown, I've, I've had a chance to visit so many different kinds of neighborhoods and throughout the U.S. and, and other, and other countries as well. And, uh, you know, maybe it's the, the types of people that I wind up 
talking with or getting invited to uh, to speak with. But there's so many grassroots organizations working hard to make their communities better um, and healthier. Um, and um, so I, I think there's a lot of power in that. And whenever yeah. I give a talk, I say, join your local pedestrian or bicycle advocacy group. They need yeah, your help. Um, we, we have to have people who understand this literature and understand the health impact yes. to get involved and to speak up. Um, because otherwise, the people who speak up are, no, you cannot take away parking places for a protected bike lane because I might have to walk uh, you know, a block farther. That's cruel and unusual punishment. Right. You can't do that. That's the apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we need people with knowledge and yes. evidence and um, good reasoning to uh, go to these meetings. And whether it's a meeting on transportation policy or climate change policy or health policy or economic policy, a lot of the solutions boil down to people-friendly environments and designing places for people to get around and not for cars to go fast. Um, and those things are incompatible. And so um, I think I'm going off topic here, but I guess it just reflects my evolution as a person from yeah. growing up in a, a little very modest neighborhood to now having the experience of seeing so much of the world and knowing how much it needs to change and knowing that it is possible to change and people are doing it every day. Yeah, that's that's, that's a great message to leave our listeners with, I think. Get involved. Indeed. And thank you for sharing all of that. Yes, it's very, yes. I think my mom would also say she was a free range kid growing up. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, we've, I think Melanie and I have learned a lot from this conversation yes. and hope that you as listeners have too. We really, really appreciate you, Dr. Salas, for coming on the podcast today. Yes. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a, it's been a fun conversation. You guys made it easy. <laughs> we try. <laughs> and to our listeners, uh, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Salas, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review. It really helps us out. And uh, go follow us on our Instagram at hnhn underscore podcast. You can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recording of all of our conversations. And we really hope that you will join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. 